Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to this week's Core Concepts, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from the Carolinas Medical Center EM Group. Today we have Natalie Wood, Jeremy Driscoll, Nikki Richardson, and I'm Joanna Kreefel. This week's installment is sponsored by Shivering, your natural response to working in the Arctic tundra that is every hospital. Shivering. Now let's get on with the show. This week we will be discussing hypothermia. Hypothermia is defined as a core body temperature below 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius. While hypothermia can be used as a therapeutic measure to decrease ischemic injury from heart attack to stroke, we'll be focusing on accidental hypothermia today. Our body's response to hypothermia is vasoconstriction, shivering the release of thyroxine and behavioral responses. But when our body temperature drops too low, these mechanisms are overwhelmed and we cannot sustain an adequate body temperature. It is important to recognize this because in-hospital mortality from hypothermia is nearly 40%. There are several factors that predispose us to hypothermia, including extremes of age, because kids have a higher surface area to volume ratio. Comorbidities, including PBD and CAD, also make us more susceptible. There are two major categories of injuries we are going to talk about, freezing and non-freezing injuries. Let's start with the non-freezing injuries first. The first non-freezing injury is chillblains, which occurs from repetitive exposure to dry cold. This presents as red or blue edematous plaques and papules classically on the face, dorsa of the hands and feet, and pretibial area of the leg. They can be itchy and burning. Supportive treatment is really all you need, but you can use a topical steroid for itch. A more serious non-freezing injury is trench foot, aka immersion foot. This happens with prolonged immersion in non-freezing water. The cold causes vasoconstriction, and you get ischemic injury over time, resulting in a pale, mottled, anesthetic foot. You usually see this in the homeless and psych patients. Treatment is, again, supportive, dry and warm the foot. And the key here is prevention. Keep your feet dry. In severe cases, trench foot can cause gangrene. Now let's move on to the freezing injuries. What do these include? Well, there are local freezing injuries and generalized hypothermia. Let's start with local freezing injuries. So what happens here is called Hunter's response where you have cycles of vasoconstriction and vasodilation to try and balance core temperature against limb ischemia. But eventually, the vasodilation stops in an effort to preserve core body temperature. And when that happens, you either get frost nip or frost bite. So what's the difference between frost nip and frost bite? Well, frost nip means that there's no ice crystal formation and thus no tissue loss. That's right. Frost nip is a superficial injury where you get temporary numbness and tingling, which resolves after rewarming. So that means this is a retrospective diagnosis after rewarming. That's correct. Your diagnosis isn't confirmed until after you rewarm and the patient's symptoms resolve. So frostbite, on the other hand, occurs when there is ice formation and therefore tissue loss. The first phase of frostbite is the freeze. It occurs when tissues are exposed to temps below zero degrees Celsius and ice crystals form causing water to shift out of cells into the extracellular space leading to cellular dehydration. Microvascular injury also occurs and causes tissue ischemia and necrosis. Then phase two occurs where you have reperfusion injury. There is fluid leak from damaged endothelium and subsequent major arachidonic acid cascade activation, leading to platelet aggregation and vasoconstriction, ultimately causing dry gangrene and blisters. Do all patients present the same way? No, there are different grades of severity based on tissue depth, and each one has a different prognosis. First and second degree are superficial and involve the dermis only, so patients have a good prognosis. 
That's right, and it's the third and fourth degree frostbites that involve the sub-Q to bone. And obviously, that has a poor prognosis. Yeah, but it's very hard to initially predict the death clinically. So how do these patients present? Well, prior to rewarming, frostbite is a whitish color, and they won't have feeling in the affected area. But after rewarming, the affected areas will be blistered, swollen, and painful. So it sounds like the key to both frost nip and frostbite is rewarming. How do you suppose I rewarm? Rapid rewarming with warm water is the key here. The ideal temperature of the water is 107 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 41.7 degrees Celsius. It's important to never use dry heat. This can be very painful, but you must continue with rewarming as refreezing is very bad. Do I need to worry about anything else in these patients, like tetanus in those wounds? That's a great question. You only need to give a tetanus booster for frostbite because these are tetanus-prone wounds. And while we're on the topic of wound care, there is a lot of controversy among surgeons as to whether or not we need to debride these blisters. The most recent agreed-upon recommendation is to debride clear blisters, but leave hemorrhagic blisters alone. Okay, so that covers the local freezing injuries. Now, let's move on to generalized hypothermia. Generalized hypothermia is defined as a core body temperature of less than 95 degrees Fahrenheit, or 35 degrees Celsius. Some causes include accidental exposure, basically not getting out of a cold environment in time, metabolic, such as adrenal, hypoglycemia, thyroid problems, sepsis, and drugs, particularly alcohol, which leads to poor behavioral decisions. And there are three clinical stages of hypothermia, mild, moderate, and severe. Mild hypothermia is defined as a core temperature of 90 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit, or 32.2 to 35 degrees Celsius. Here you get an excitation response, an increase in heart rate, blood pressure, and respiratory rate, as well as shivering. Some patients also present with mild confusion. In moderate hypothermia, core body temperature is 86 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit, or 30 to 32.3 degrees Celsius. This causes a slowing of all physiological functions and shivering stops. You have worsening mental status, dysarthria, and ataxia. This is also where you start to see EKG abnormalities, including that classic Osborne wave, which is ST segment notching. That's right, but remember that the Osborne waves are characteristic but not pathognomonic of hypothermia. Other causes of Osborne waves include hyperkalemia and head injury. Finally, severe hypothermia is any core body temperature below 86 degrees Fahrenheit, or 30 degrees Celsius. Here we see a classic dysrhythmia degradation, where patients go from sinus bradycardia to a slow AFib to VFib, and eventually to asystole because the myocardium is really irritable. And this is where patients start to develop cold-induced bronchorrhea because lung tissues get cold and cilia stop moving, so there is pooling of secretions. Pupils may be fixed and dilated, and cold diuresis occurs. That's right. You get a cold diuresis because vasoconstriction causes fluid to build up in the central core, increasing urination, and the sodium pumps in the kidneys stop working at cold temperatures, so you lose the ability to concentrate urine. A few other effects of severe hypothermia are on coagulation, the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, and blood glucose levels. In terms of coagulopathy, there's a loss of enzyme function, often hidden on testing initially, and you can get DIC from endothelial ischemia and thromboxane platelet stimulation. And at these cold temperatures, hemoglobin increases its affinity for oxygen. Thus, hemoglobin holds on to oxygen in the periphery, and the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve shifts to the left. Hyperglycemia is also common. Insulin is ineffective below 88 degrees Fahrenheit or 31.1 degrees Celsius. So should I be giving hyperglycemic patients insulin in these cases? No, you want to avoid giving exogenous insulin until the patient is rewarmed because as they are rewarming, their own insulin will be released and able to work again. So what treatment do I need to give to patients who are hypothermic? Again, rewarming is key. 
but this time there are several different therapeutic rewarming methods to choose from, and cardiovascular status is largely going to determine which one we use. In general, you want to avoid using invasive cardiac procedures because life-threatening arrhythmias need heat. Do CPR and intubation as usual, but remember that electricity and drugs don't work in the cold. For VFib, you will need to give one countershock, but then focus on rewarming. And the different types of therapeutic rewarming include passive and active. So passive rewarming is for patients with mild hypothermia, and therefore they still have the ability to shiver. This is where you insulate the patient with warm, dry blankets and allow shivering thermogenesis to raise core body temperature. Active rewarming has two forms, invasive and non-invasive, and is used for moderate to severe hypothermia in which the patient is unable to shiver. Choosing between invasive and non-invasive forms is still determined by hemodynamic stability. Non-invasive active rewarming is used for the hemodynamically stable patient. This includes the application of exogenous heat using a bear hugger, warm humidified oxygen, and warm IV fluids at 107 or 41.7 degrees Celsius. Invasive active rewarming is for the hemodynamically unstable patient. This includes using warmed air on a ventilator if the patient is intubated, lavage of the bladder, stomach, or even peritoneally with a DPL catheter, rectally, or using a chest tube. And you can even use a thoracotomy to rewarm the chest cavity directly if that's the only thing you have left. But make sure you talk to your surgical colleagues before you do this since they'll be the ones reconstructing the chest wall when you're done. And you'll want to incorporate extracorporeal rewarming as well. This is actually the most efficacious. The goal is to get the temperature to above 86 degrees Fahrenheit or 30 degrees Celsius. Well, that's all we have for hypothermia. Thanks for listening and stay warm. Thanks again for the discussion team. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios here in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out!